Well, please turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 8 tonight. Exodus chapter 8. This is another one of those zoom-in passages, and tonight we'll be examining the second, the third, and the fourth plagues a little more specifically. We are zooming in, but not overly much. As I've mentioned before, the theological themes being expressed in these first nine plagues are, are largely the same, so they are worth our attention, they are worth our study, but at the same time, we don't want to get overly repetitive or redundant. So let's look to Exodus chapter 8. First, we will uh, read God's word, and then we'll pray and ask for his help and blessing on our study together. So let's look now to Exodus chapter 8. I'll begin reading at the final verse of chapter 7, and we'll read the whole of chapter 8. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats, a man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. 
Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice things abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Let's pray. O Lord, open our eyes that we may see your truth. Open our ears. Speak to us that we may hear it and receive it gladly. And send your Holy Spirit and his ministry of illumination as we give ourselves over to the study of and devotion to your word this night. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things for us to see as we examine these three plagues of chapter 8, as God is humiliating and laying waste to the hapless gods of Egypt. Three swaps, if you like. Instead of what Pharaoh thought he had in the power of his deities, God renders these things to him instead. Death instead of life, chaos instead of order, and judgment instead of worship. Instead of life, death, instead of order, chaos, and instead of worship, judgment. So let's think through those three things together, shall we? First, death instead of life. Well, after those seven long days pass, after that first plague there at the final verse of chapter 7, Remember, blood flowed through the river Nile, it flowed into the streams and into the ponds, seven days of dead fish, and the Nile stank with that foul, putrid smell of blood, the scripture says. The Lord God of Israel triumphed over the impotent river gods of Egypt. And so after that week had gone by, we come to chapter 8, Moses is instructed by God to return to Pharaoh and to repeat this ultimatum yet again, this time with a different threat. You see that there in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, 
Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Now, it's quite the image. I remember reading it to my, my boys a couple years ago, and when just reading plain scripture, and they both giggled at that, that, that imagery of what kind of a threat is that? It's not fire raining down from the sky, it's we're being attacked with frogs. That's a humorous image, perhaps even. But we're told that this is going to be no minor inconvenience, it's no laughing matter. Verse 4 The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, and into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into the houses of your servants and your people. And into your ovens and your kneading bowls, the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Interestingly, as we've noted before, sometimes the Hebrew text will call these events not plagues, but signs and wonders. However, here, in verse 2 of chapter 8, the Hebrew word for plague is used. It says, behold, it's used by the Lord, behold, I will plague all your country. There at the end of verse 2, plague in a woodenly literal sense means to strike or to blow or to pummel. That's what the Lord is doing here to the kingdom of Egypt. Now you'll you'll see that there's something of a a narrative gap between verse 4 and verse 5. There's an implied assumption. God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him thus and such. And we know Pharaoh's response. So rather than recounting that fruitless exchange in the palace, Moses just skips right to the result of Pharaoh's stubbornness there in verse 5. He doesn't even bother recounting Pharaoh's stubborn retort. Verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron did. And apparently, according to the end of verse 6, the frogs came up and they covered the land of Egypt. They came out of every nook and every cranny and they went everywhere. But God had a serious theological purpose for sending what seems to be maybe, at first blush, a kind of silly plague or at least a strange and unusual plague. Listen to what James Boyce wrote years ago. In view in this plague was the goddess Hecate, often pictured with the head and body of a frog. Because of this, the frog, the creature, was sacred in Egypt. It could not be killed. And consequently, there was nothing the Egyptians could do about this horrible and ironic proliferation of their goddess. They were forced to loathe the symbols of their depraved worship. Loathe them, but they could not kill them. And when the frogs died, their decaying bodies must have turned the towns and countryside into a stinking horror. Close quote. Charles Spurgeon said on this text, These be thy gods, O Egypt. Thou shalt have enough of them. Scholars tell us that Hecate was supposed to restrain the frog population by protecting crocodiles. Uh, crocodiles were the frog's natural predator, right? A frog makes a nice lunch for a crocodile. And so the, croc, uh, the, the frog goddess is supposed to restrain the, the carnivorous activity of the crocodile and preserve the frog population. But now, with Egypt overrun with frogs, Hecate was humiliated. Hecate was also, according to Egyptian theology, to assist women in childbirth. She was the spirit who breathed life into the body. And interestingly here, there may be a connection 
between this plague and Pharaoh's sin against the Hebrew midwives way back in the beginning of Exodus. Remember way back in chapter 1, in his effort to exterminate the Israelites, Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill Israel's baby boys. Slaughter my people, will you, says the Lord of hosts, and you will find yourself overrun with your own lives ruined by your pathetic, laughable, life-giving deity, which ironically we see in verses 13 and 14, your life-giving deity. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they, the Egyptian people, gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. The life-giving deity goddess of Egypt, she's dead, slain in heaps before their very eyes. And Pharaoh, what does he do? Well, he summons his sorcerers, verse 7, to imitate the act. Again, how that helped is beyond me. How this helped their situation is only a puzzle to me. They only made more. You'll notice the text say, they only made more frogs come upon the land of Egypt. It only exacerbated the problem. It doesn't take any frogs away. It doesn't put any frogs back in the river. It just makes more frogs. Thanks a lot, guys. So, desperate, by verse 8, Pharaoh begs Moses and Pharaoh, excuse me, Pharaoh begs Moses and Aaron, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Is this a, is this a change of heart for Pharaoh? More like desperation and superstition. Nevertheless, Moses does pray for Pharaoh. Verses 9 through 12, and in verse 13, the frogs indeed died out. But verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now you see there, Pharaoh has learned something. Pharaoh's learned something. He, he utters the name of God with his own lips. He, he says Lord there in verse 8. And if you, in your translation, like mine, it's probably capital L-O-R-D. Pharaoh utters the covenant name of Yahweh on his lips. He uses the proper name. He's learned something of God's power and God's demands. He's realized that the only chance he had for relief here is to ask Moses God to undo this curse. And he knows that, that Moses God wants his people to be able to go and worship him and offer sacrifices to him. Verse 8, he promises to do that, which of course turns out to be a lie. All of this just goes to show how much a person can learn about God without ever knowing him savingly. Knowing a great deal about him, but not knowing him savingly. There's a warning. Again, Spurgeon it would have been a wonderfully good sign if Pharaoh had said, Join with me, O Moses and Aaron, while I pray unto Jehovah that he may take the frogs from me. But no, he had only a condemning faith, which contented itself with other men's prayers instead of prayers on behalf of himself. Close quote. So that's the first thing we see with this first deity, this first plague in the text. Instead of life... Mocking the so-called Egyptian deity of life, God overruns them with frogs who are themselves thus overrun with death. Death instead of life. That's the first swap. Relief comes, but very quickly the next plague arrives. And that brings us to the second thing that we see. This time we see chaos instead of order. Chaos instead of order. 
Now, the time period between that second plague of frogs and this third plague of gnats, we're not told precisely how long that waiting period was. Now, with with the, the previous intermission between plague one and plague two, notice chapter 7, verse 25, there was an interlude of about a week. But this next plague, this plague of the gnats, it comes without a warning. But in any event, without warning, verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All of the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Uh, the modern Hebrew meaning of the word kinim, which is the word that the original language of Scripture uses here for gnats, in modern Hebrew, they take that word as lice. That's how the old King James Version translates the word. But whether they were gnats, and there's, there's all, as you can imagine, all kinds of scholarly debate as to what kinds of bugs these were. Were they gnats, or were they lice, or were they mosquitoes? The point is, according to verse 17, these bugs came upon man and beast, swarming all over Egypt, harassing every living creature. Now, some have posited that perhaps they were swarming mosquitoes that had bred on the River Nile. Now, maybe. Some have suggested maybe maggots. They, they were festering. They came out of the, the frogs. They were festering in the, the rotting carcasses of the dead frogs heaped upon the land. And maybe they bred from, from those frogs and scattered all over the place. But look again at verse 16. God says to Aaron, through Moses, Strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. These things... These bugs, these gnats, were supernaturally created, you see. Not simply multiplied out of already existing insects or already existing natural elements. God takes granules of dust all over the ground of sandy Egypt and he turns them into swarming gnats rather than simply multiplying the breeding ground on the Nile to make more mosquitoes or rather than simply multiplying maggots growing in dead frog carcasses. No, the point that God is making here is as theological as it is polemical. Now, that point was probably lost on the Egyptians, who were frankly just miserable with the harassment that they were enduring. But I dare say to the Hebrews that their, their biblically astute ears would have perked up upon hearing this. Now, the whole land is covered with them, these gnats. Like what? Like dust. Remember back in Genesis... What God promised to make Abraham into a great nation, he said that his descendants would be like the dust of the earth. Genesis 13, verse 16. Meaning that Abraham would have more offspring than he could possibly count. The polemical point here that God is making is wonderful. You dare. You dare to try and snuff out my people, Pharaoh. I swore to Abram that I would multiply his descendants and I will, Pharaoh, despite your best efforts and to punish you for your wickedness, my people will be as numerous as the dust, and I will make the numerous dust in your own land on your own soil. I will make it to be a misery to you, a plague upon you, until you get my point, Pharaoh. With the previous two plagues, God mocked their false god of life and fertility by plaguing the Nile and then plaguing the frogs. This time, this third plague against the gnats, it may, it may have been intended to uh, humiliate the earth god, Geb. 
By turning the dust into bugs, God was claiming authority over the very soil, over the very dirt of Egypt. Pharaoh doesn't get anything, does he? He doesn't get any, any claim of power. God says, I'm power over your rivers. I'm in power over your creatures. I'm in power over your skies, as we'll see in the later plagues. Heck, I'm in power over the very dirt underneath your feet. You've got nothing, Pharaoh. But beyond that, God was assaulting their whole religious system, remember? Whether, we, whether there's a specific God in mind with each plague, he's really assaulting their whole religious system. Remember, the kings of Egypt, the pharaohs, were viewed as kind of mini-gods, as, as living deities upon the earth. The Egyptians believed Pharaoh had the power to bring about cosmic order. We spoke about this in Sunday school this morning. They believed that Pharaoh had this internal ability to, to bring about a kind of equilibrium to life and society. One of their ancient texts called the Prophecy of Nefertiti says that when the king begins to reign, it says, then order will come into its place and chaos will be driven out. That's what the Egyptian people believed their pharaohs had the ability to do. Drive out chaos, bring in order and stability. Here, the true God, Jehovah, is positively disabusing them of this notion as he unleashes pure chaos upon Pharaoh's kingdom, striking them with plague after plague, throwing their world into utter disarray and confusion. In his own way, it was as if God was uncreating the world, at least in Egypt. We spoke a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. Scholar John Currid has noticed these fascinating parallels between the Exodus plagues and the six days of creation in Genesis. Let me just list just a few. When God created the world, he separated light from darkness, day one. But in the ninth plague upon Egypt, the light was blotted out. He, God, gathered the water into one place on day two of creation. But in the first plague, the water was turned into blood, Exodus 7. He, God, made vegetation grow on the land in day three of creation. But in the seventh and eighth plagues, he destroyed Pharaoh, Egypt's crops, Exodus 9 and 10. God made land animals and people on day six of creation, but in the third through six plagues, he afflicted both man and beast with pestilence and disease until finally God killed every firstborn son in Egypt. Close quote. With, with such chaos and with such a parallel there, Dr. Currid concludes that God was in essence decreating Egypt as he's creating the world out of, in Genesis, and as he's constituting, in a sense, e, uh, Israel as a nation here in this Exodus event, there's this, this up-and-down foil, isn't there, almost, of the creation and Genesis and the decreation of Egypt as he's undoing them. Exodus says that the insects came from the dust of the ground, and that may draw your mind all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. And in that case, man is made to have dominion over all creatures, to have dominion over all creation, yes, as a, as a vice-regent underneath God himself. But this time, do you notice the reversal? The ironic reversal? This time, the creatures, these puny insects, they have dominion over the people. They are harassing Egypt to no end. They have dominion over them, making their life a horror. And thus, the order of creation is reversed. Adam, dominion over creation. As Egypt is decreated, insects dominion over them. And so Pharaoh summons his magicians again. 
these soothsayer priests in a desperate attempt to bring order out of chaos using their powers. Up until now, these sorcerers have been rather impressive to an extent. But then there's that jarring statement there at verse 18. You see it? Verse 18 on into 19. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the Egyptians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now, the magicians seem to get it. But verse 19, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Stopped in their tracks. Do notice that what really impressed them was not so much the plague itself that is being wrought upon them, but rather what impressed them is the fact that God had the power to prevent them from duplicating it. Satan is powerful, no question, but he has his limits. He has his limits. Did this realization make believers out of these sorcerers? Unlikely. For one thing, they invoke the word God here. It's a more generic term as opposed to the covenant name Yahweh. Elohim is the word they use. It's a generic word for God. It seems to me that, that these men realize something of what's happening, but not savingly. How many people we know that speak of the man upstairs or a higher power? They, they recognize the finger of God. They recognize his power and his deity and his greatness. But it's not a declaration of faith like we hear from David in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Our Lord Jesus uses the same language later on in Luke 11. Verse 20, part of what we read this evening. But if it is by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Satan's power had been overthrown, defeated, and the way opened to eternal life. The finger of God, the power of God, ultimately, of course, to the power to atone for sin and raise Jesus Christ from the dead. The point being, take heed, dear friends. Take heed that you have true faith, living faith, sincere faith, not a generic faith in some generic higher power, but no, a saving faith in the true God and in his son, Jesus Christ. So that's the second thing. Death instead of life, chaos instead of order, and finally, we see judgment instead of worship. Since Pharaoh won't let God's people go and worship him, God will visit him with yet more misery and plague and judgment. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve or worship me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. This time the plague is flies. Verse 21 uses a play on words. If Pharaoh did not send the Israelites out, then God would send in the flies. Let my people go that they may worship me. That's been the goal all along. And that, by the way, is the gospel in miniature. God's plan is to save his people for his glory, most supremely. We are saved, we are redeemed, we are liberated. Why? To worship. 
to worship God, to glorify and enjoy him forever. Like he said of Pharaoh of old, in a way, Christ said to the, in the New Testament, to death, to sin, to Satan, and to the grave, the Lord Jesus proclaims, let my people go, that they may worship me, and they might be mine forever. And so far, we've seen the Lord dethrone the Egyptian gods of river and life. We've seen him dethrone the god of fertility with the frogs. We've seen him dethrone the god of the ground or the soil with the gnats. And now we see him dethrone the god or goddess of the air and sky with the flies. And do bear in mind that this, was, this is not some mere nuisance. You know, the, the way flies are in the hot summertime, in the hot summer sun. It was a whole plague of them. An inundation so severe that flies covered every inch of ground and invaded every corner of every building. There were flies everywhere, buzzing in the ears of every Egyptian. The Bible says that they they wreaked such havoc that the land was ruined there in verse 24. Later on, Psalm 78, verse 45, explains that God sent swarms of flies that devoured them. The, The flies virtually ate the Egyptians alive. Which deity is God targeting with this plague? Well, there's a couple of interesting options. Scholars have suggested anything from houseflies to mosquitoes to dogflies, these, these blood-sucking bugs that tormented man and beast. Perhaps they were flying, biting scarab beetles. In Egyptian religion, the, the scarab was an emblem of the sun, representing eternity, the abiding life of the soul. The god of the resurrection, Kephrer was depicted as a beetle. Maybe that's who he had in mind. Or the plague of flies may have been directed against Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. Some Egyptians worshipped Beelzebub as their protector. His role was to protect their land from swarms of flies and other natural disasters. He, he functioned as a, cor- as a kind of cosmic insurance policy. But like the rest of Egypt's gods and goddesses, we know Beelzebub is actually a tool of the devil. We read from Luke 11. Luke 11 verse 15 confirms this when Beelzebub is identified as the prince of demons. So whatever view we take, ultimately the point is this. Once again, God was demonstrating his power over Pharaoh's gods. They were hapless and pathetic. Beelzebub could not keep away the flies. Kephra could not raise the dead. The only God with such power is the God of Israel, the one whose Son, Jesus Christ, alone has the words of eternal life. Do notice also the distinction that is highlighted here more clearly, more starkly than it's been made in the previous plagues. Verse 22, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow the sign shall happen. Stark contrast. It could not be clearer and it could not be missed by any. God saying, these are my people, dwelling in the land of Goshen and the region of Goshen, where the Hebrews have dwelt since the time of Joseph. And they're spared. Clear skies, no flies, no plague. They're, they're swarming in Egypt, making your lives a misery. Flies buzzing in your ears and biting all over, but not my people. (laughs) They're not over there at all. So now let my people go. And we'll see this distinction keep getting heightened with each subsequent plague. Spared the Israelites were from boils and spared from the loss of livestock and crops and darkness and ultimately spared 
from the death of the firstborn. God has a people. Israel, as we shall see in chapters to come, they were not a perfect people. They were not a sinless people. But they were God's people. Just like you, church of God. His people. Verse 23. God will make a distinction between my people and your people. That The Hebrew there, woodenly, very literally translated, says this. I will set a redemption between my people and your people. The difference goes all the way back to eternity past. When God differentiated between those who were his people and those who were not his people. Ephesians 1 verse 4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He chose them because he chose them. And he loved them simply in order to love them. A redemption price was paid tragically in the costly death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. And it resulted in the liberation of Israel. And what was true for Israel in the days of Moses is true for the church of Jesus Christ, is it not? God has set a redemption for his chosen people. And this redemption is found in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, and it can be found nowhere else. But verse 24, Pharaoh can't stand it, and so he goes to Moses. Notice how he bypasses his sorcerers altogether. Doesn't even bother with them this time. Pharaoh knows the Hebrews need to worship. Moses has asked previously that they be allowed to travel some distance, but Pharaoh counters, offer worship to your God. Maybe it'll appease him. Maybe it'll stop these miserable flies, but I don't want you to get away and escape from me. So just offer your worship right here in the land where you are. Don't travel. But Moses insists, no, no, we can't do that. We're going to sacrifice animals like bulls and rams. Animals that are sacred in Egyptian theology, representative of your various deities. If the Hebrews slaughter those animals in their sight, there's going to be a riot. Abominable to the Egyptians. They'll stone us. We need to journey elsewhere. So, Pharaoh supposedly acquiesces. I'll let you go sacrifice to the Lord in the wilderness. Just don't go very far. Plead for me. Ask God to relent of these flies. Verse 28, Moses agrees, warns Pharaoh not to cheat the people again. He prays. The next day, God removes the swarm of flies. And again, Pharaoh reneges on the agreement. He hardens his heart and does not let Israel go. How many folks do we know in a life crisis, in a moment of desperation, they'll pray to God, God, if you'll just do this, I'll change. I'll clean up my life. Just just do this one thing for me. And there's no follow-through. Even if God mercifully grants the request, there's no follow-through. And as Pharaoh does that, it's yet more evidence that his heart is still bound in spiritual darkness. That's often the temptation, isn't it? To render to God some of what he is due. To, to render some of our obedience, some of our faithfulness. Did you see how Pharaoh tries to get Moses to water down the requirement? Must you obey God to the full extent of what he said? Do you have to go out three days' journey? Can you just go out a little bit? No, Moses insists. We must go out to worship the Lord. He has a claim on his people, and we owe him wholehearted obedience. And if you won't let us worship, judgment is coming to you. God required that Israel come out of Egypt, didn't he? Once again, our friend Spurgeon puts it beautifully. 
God's demand is not that his people should have some little liberty, some little rest in their sin. No, but that they should go right out of Egypt. Christ did not come into the world merely to make our sin more tolerable, but to deliver us right away from it. And we would, in God's name, push for full committal to Christ with everybody who is tempted to a compromise. Close quote. So there's a warning, but also an invitation, friends. The truth is, either we will worship Christ, or we will find ourselves under his hand of judgment. There's no other option. So come to Christ. Come to Christ. And as we do, as we do come to him, let us not give partial obedience. Let us not give him fractional faithfulness. But rather, because he has, like Israel of old, set a redemption for us, because he has marked us as his people, let us render to him the glad and wholehearted totality of ourselves. And by the grace of God, that may be true of us. After all, he's given us not just a partial, but a whole Christ and all his benefits. Praise the Lord for such mercy he's shown to us as people. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, we do bless you for your word. And truly, once again, we ask that as we've read it and studied it and considered it this night, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.